Nabihi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wasallam. Um, just a few announcements before we uh, begin. The first announcement is again about the uh, Islamic Network uh, quarterly magazine. Uh, it's available outside. Please do pick up a copy or more than one copy if you wish to uh, distribute it. And uh, uh, I'm sure you'll benefit greatly from it. The second announcement is uh, the public speaking competition that was mentioned earlier, uh, which will be in uh, Al Muntada Al Islami on Saturday, 21st of August from 10 uh, a.m. in the morning. Uh, third announcement again, uh, I'm sure. Uh, please do go outside and have a read of these leaflets for Preston University. Um, our respected Sheikh has uh, uh, opened up this uh, branch of uh, Preston University in the Emirates, in Ajman, uh, where, you, where you are able to study a uh, Islamic degree mixed with uh, secular sciences like mathematics, biology. Um, the degree is in English. Uh, please do pick up a leaflet and, uh, and read more about it. That would be very worthwhile for you to do. The second lecture we have in store for you uh, is entitled The Boy and the King by our respected Sheikh and brother Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips. Um, Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips graduated from Medina University, did his uh, Masters and his PhD in Wales and has been in the field of Da'wah for many, many, many years. Uh, he is uh, an author of many books and is currently the Dean of uh, uh, the Islamic Faculty of Preston University in uh, UAE. So without further ado, I'll pass, uh, pass you all over to him. الحمد لله نحمد ونستعين ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله Indeed all praise due to Allah and as such we should praise him seek his help, and seek refuge in him from the evil which is within ourselves and the evil which results from our deeds. For whomsoever Allah has guided, none can misguide, and whomsoever Allah has allowed to go astray, none can guide. And I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, and that Muhammad wasallam is the last messenger of Allah. Inna asdaq al-hadith kitabullah. وخير هدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار. Indeed, the most truthful form of speech is the book of Allah, and the best source of guidance is that brought by Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم. And the worst of all affairs are the innovations in religion, for every innovation in religion is a cursed innovation. 
and every cursed innovation is a source of misguidance and all misguidance leads ultimately to the hellfire. The topic of this afternoon is not actually the boy and the king, but it is the tafsir of Surah Al-Buruj. The boy and the king happens to be within that tafsir. But what I was asked to present was actually the tafsir of Surah Al-Buruj, the 85th chapter of the Qur'an, which begins after Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan ar-Rajim, Wassamai Dhat al-Buruj, I swear by the sky possessing constellations. Allah here swears by both the sky and the constellations themselves. The sky represents one of the most vast and expansive aspects of creation. It is something that we are in contact with wherever we are in the world. So Allah chose it to swear by it. And not only to swear by it, but to swear by the constellations in it, the Buruj. The Buruj, of course, term Buruj is a plural for Burj. And Buruj actually refers to the great stars or the star configurations. Yusuf Ali, in his translation of the Quran, he translated it as the zodiacal signs, signs of the zodiac. And uh, Marmadu Pixal, he translated it as the mansions of the stars, which is among the explanations given by the Mufassirin from the Sahaba and the Tabi'in. But then he went on to say that it is applied to the signs of the zodiac. So actually both of them uh, enforce or reinforce the idea that Allah swears by the signs of the zodiac. Signs of the zodiac means, and this is, this is a means of fortune telling. People who uh, determine by the day you are born what your sign is and what is good for you to do today and what is not good for you to do today. This is fortune telling. And of course, the Prophet ﷺ had said, Man ata kahinan faqad kafara bima unzila ala Muhammad. Whoever comes to a fortune teller has disbelieved in what Muhammad received of revelation. So this actually, this practice is kufr. Checking out our signs is kufr if we believe what we read. But if we check it out, out of curiosity, we just want to know what are they saying for a laugh or whatever, then the Prophet ﷺ had said, whoever goes to a, cat, to a uh, fortune teller, this is out of curiosity, then his salah is not accepted for 40 days and nights. That is how serious it is. It's not something that you play with. You know, even going to a Chinese restaurant, and at the end of the meal they give you fortune cookies. You know, people pop these cookies open to see what fortune is written there, just for fun. You know, you and your family, whatever, you just have a laugh. But that nullifies the value of your salah for 40 days and nights. It's very serious. Islam is very serious in its opposition to fortune telling and anything related to it. And this is something uh, we can find even in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy. 
we find it there states that the, stating that the fortune tellers should be executed. And this is the law in Islam. The people who are actually practicing this, and they're caught without repenting, that they're executed. The punishment is that severe. Because what it does is it takes people away from trusting in Allah. They claim to have knowledge which really only belongs to Allah. Only Allah knows the future. Where they are claiming in that way, by claiming to be able to tell you a future, they are taking on some of Allah's attributes. This is why it is so, so considered so grave and the punishment so great. We should also note that when Allah swears by the, the sky and the stars within the sky, He is also calling us to the reality that the signs of His presence exist all around us. He swears by the sky because there is in the sky signs. Those who are astronomers, who spend their lives studying the stars, the farthest of the stars, the near ones, the supernovas, the black holes, all these different phenomena that they're finding in the sky. When you listen to them talk, most of them reaffirm the belief in God. Even though coming through science, their relationship with religion is usually cancelled, but the awareness of God is there because of the greatness of the sky and the stars within it. So, Allah, in swearing by this, the, the sky and its, the stars, He is calling us to this reality to reflect that this great aspect of creation, with all of its intricacies, could this have happened by itself? Or is this the product of design of a all-knowing, wise God. Allah then goes on in the next two verses, وَالْيَوْمِ الْمَوْعُودِ وَشَاهِدٍ وَمَشْهُودِ By the promised day and by the witness and the witnessed. By the promised day. Ibn Kathir he narrated from Ibn Abi Hatim that Abu Huraira quoted the Prophet وسلم, as saying that the promised day refers to the day of judgment, the day to come. This day, of course, relative to Allah's creation, is of great significance in our lives. All of our lives revolves around that promised day. The day of judgment. Everything that we do in this life will come to a head on that day. It will be judged. Allah will determine our future on that day based on the lives we've lived. So it is something very, very important, very significant. And always, whenever Allah swears by anything in the Quran, He's swearing by things of great importance. We should always, when we read the, the, the various oaths of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to reflect on what He's swearing by. And what's unique here, when you consider that Allah links the promised day, swearing by the promised day, and the 
sky and the stars. The sky and the stars are some things that we can see. We can all observe it. Whereas the promised day is something unseen. But for the believer, Allah swearing by the invisible is like swearing by the visible. This is for the true believer. When Allah swears by the day to come, it is just like him swearing by the sky and the stars. They're as real to him, and they should be as real to him or her, as the sky and the stars. Ibn al-Qayyim, he discussed the issue of the witness and the witnessed, saying that they are not specific. There are statements from some of the Sahaba and some of the Tabi'een as to what the witness and the witness refers to. Ibn al-Qayyim points out that really what they have mentioned are examples. That there are no authentic narrations to specify what is the witness and the witnessed. Instead, Allah has sworn by the witness and the witnessed as a general oath. And he said, the most general meaning, or the most general of its meanings, are that they refer to the censor and the sensed, one who is aware of things and the things that he is aware of. The knower and the known, the seer and the seen. These are the most suitable meanings for it. As he said, as for the other opinions, they are only examples for which there is no basis to specify them to the exclusion of others. But Allah, in swearing by these three things, by the sky and the stars within it, by the day of judgment and by the witness and the witnessed, he has encompassed Everything in existence. Everything besides himself. And in one way or another, these various aspects of existence point back to him. Call us to reflect on some aspect of his knowledge, his dominion, his might, etc. Ibn al-Qayyim explained it saying, he swore by the uppermost world, the sky and the constellations in it, which is the greatest and most vast location in this world. Then he swore by the greatest and most glorious day, which highlights his dominion, his command, his reward and punishment. It gathers his allies and his enemies, and the judgment between them is according to his knowledge and his justice. Then he swore by something more general than all of that, the witness and the witnessed. And he related this oath to the story of the people of the trench who were tortured for being allies of Allah. They were witnesses to what they did to the believers. The angels witnessed them, so did the prophets, and their limbs will bear witness against them also. Also, the witness is aware and watchful. As in this world there are witnesses and witnessed, it is only common sense for us to realize that there is a greater witness. We are all a part of the witnessed. That greater witness is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who witnesses 
whatever we do. He witnesses everything in this world, whether it is visible or whether it is invisible. As in Surah Al-Haqqah, verse 38-39, where Allah swears there, saying, فَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِمَا تُبْسِرُونَ وَمَا لَا تُبْسِرُونَ I swear by what you see and what you do not see. The witness and the witnessed. This is also a part of how Allah has divided this world into opposites. He has made the world into sky and earth, into day and night, male and female. And all of this variation is also part of Allah's science. That this is the greatness. That when He creates, He creates everything with this built-in variation. And realizing this differentiation, variation in Allah's creation, it should call us to glorifying Him. When we look around us, this should encourage us, should build in us a sense of Allah's presence, Allah's existence. And Ibn al-Qayyim went on to point out that there is another point which is somewhat hidden, that among the created things, there are those that are witnessed against. And the system of this world is incomplete without it. For how could creatures be witnesses, watchers and guardians for others, and the Creator, blessed and transcendent, is not a witness for his slaves, unaware and watching over them? This also contains the witness and the witnessed, an oath by the angels because they witness, and an oath by the prophets, the messengers, because they were witnesses. And when we look at this whole issue of the witness and the witnessed, as we said, Allah has put in it science for each and every one of us. There is a witness in everything. So much so that Allah tells us on the day of judgment that our limbs, our body parts, will be witness against us. The animals, the jinn, all of the world around us will either witness for us or witness against us. So the oath by the witness and the witnessed is an oath by the creation as a whole. Because that exists in one way or another within all aspects of creation. And it calls us to reflect on our state. That there is nothing hidden from Allah. It goes back again to Allah's complete knowledge. Nothing is hidden from Him. Therefore, we should be wary of whatever we do. We should be conscious of being witnessed by all aspects of His creation and even more so by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself. After that, after swearing by these elements of Allah's creation, He goes to the purpose for which He made these oaths. So the chapters, uh, verses 4 to 7, he says, قُتِلَ أَصْحَابُ الْأُخْدُودِ 
النار ذات الوقود إذ هم عليها قعود وهم على ما يفعلون بالمؤمنين شهود Cursed are those who dug the trench of fire abundantly supplied with fuel when they sat by it and witnessed what they did to the believers. Cursed are those who dug the trench of fire. Actually Allah says Qutila ashabul ukhdud. Qutila means they were killed. But the scholars of tafsir clarify that this is a curse. That they are cursed. Because of what they did to a group of people. This group of people are the basis or represent the basis of the story of the boy and the king. This story is narrated in Sahih Muslim as well as Sunan al-Tirmidhi and the Musnad of Ahmad ibn Hanbal. I'm sure most of you have heard it before. I'll just go through it quickly. Suhaib and Abu Huraira narrated from the Prophet that he said, Among the people who came before you, there was a king who had a sorcerer. When the sorcerer became old, he told the king that he was close to death and he should send someone, a boy, that he could teach, he could pass his knowledge on to. So the king chose a boy and sent him. And the sorcerer taught, taught him magic. But on the way to the sorcerer, there was a monk on the road. And he heard the monk teaching, so he went and sat with him. And he was amazed and admired what he heard from the monk. But what happened was that it caused him to be delayed in going to the sorcerer. So when he got to the sorcerer late, the sorcerer would give him a thrashing. And of course, if he was late to the sorcerer, he became late going back home to his family. And he got himself another thrashing. So he mentioned this to the sorcerer, asking him, what should he do? This is, you know, he tolerated it for a few days, but then it became too much for him. So the sorcerer told him that if he fears punishment... He should tell the sor- uh, sorry, not the, the monk told him, he went to the monk, the monk told him that if he fears punishment, he should tell the sorcerer that his family had delayed him. And when he gets back to his family, he should tell the family that the sorcerer delayed him. Right? So, that's what he did. And he continued to learn from the monk as well as the sorcerer. At one point, there appeared in the road, that same road that he was taking to the monk, a beast, a huge animal, which blocked the road. The people from his town who needed to go to their business or whatever were unable to go because of this beast. A very fearful animal was there in the road. The hadith doesn't go in to describe what kind of animal it is. We just know it was a fearful beast. Anyway, for the young boy, 
he decided that this would be the point to test what he had received from the monk and what he was receiving from the sorcerer. So he said, actually within himself, there is no doubt that he already believed in what the monk had, what the monk was teaching him. But also to make this differentiation clear in the minds of the people, he said aloud, some people were there observing him, Today, I will know which is better, or who is better, the sorcerer or the monk. So he made a dua. O Allah, if the deeds and actions of the monk are liked by you, and better than that of the sorcerer, then kill this creature so that the people can cross the road. He took a stone and he threw it at the beast, and it died. And the people passed through the road. When he went on to the monk and he informed him what had transpired, the monk said to him, Oh my son, today you are better than I. But you will be persecuted. And if that happens, don't inform the people about me. Do not inform the people about me. Anyway, the boy continued to go to the monk and to the sorcerer. Being young, he's not able to just stop immediately. But on his way, he would still try to alleviate the sicknesses, the illnesses that people suffered. He went to people who were blind, people who had leprosy and other diseases, and they were cured with his duas. Then one of the courtiers of the king, who had sent him there in the first place, who had become blind, he heard about the boy. So he went to the boy with a set of gifts. And he told the boy, if you heal me, if you cure me, cure my blindness, these gifts are all yours. The boy said to him, I don't need your gifts. And I don't cure anybody. It is only Allah who cures people. So if you believe in Allah and supplicate to Him, He will cure you. So the courtier believed in Allah, accepted belief in Allah, prayed to Him, and Allah cured him. After that, the courtier went back to the king, and the king noticed that he was able to sit, see now. So he said, what happened to you? And he said, oh, he asked him, not what happened to you, but who gave you back your sight? How did you get your sight back? He said, the courtier said, my Lord, my Lord returned my sight. So the king said, I did? The courtier said, no, my Lord, but your Lord did. The king, the, the king said, do you have another Lord besides me? And the courtier said, yes, your Lord and my Lord is Allah. So the king promptly had him tortured until he revealed information about the boy. 
At that point, he called the boy, brought the boy there, and started to torture him. Until the boy revealed information about the monk. And then he brought the monk. And he put a saw at the head of the monk. And told him to recant, to give up his religion. And the monk refused. So he sawed him in half. In front of the courtier and the boy. Then he called for the courtier. Put the saw by his head and told him to give up his religion. And the courtier refused. And he was sawn in half. Then he called the boy. And he told the boy to abandon his religion. The boy refused. So he told some of his people to take the boy to the top of a particular mountain. And to give him the option of either recanting, giving up his religion and coming back to worshipping the king. Or that he be thrown off that mountain. So they took him up to the top of the mountain. When they reached the top, the boy made dua. He said, O oh Allah, save me from them by any means that you wish. Allah caused the mountain to shake. They fell off the mountain and died. And he came walking back to the king. The king saw him and said, What happened to the people I sent with you? He said, Allah saved me from them. So the king ordered some more people to take him out to sea, out to the middle of the sea, the ocean, and to throw him in, drown him, if he didn't recant from his religion. When they took him out, waves were strong, they threatened him, he refused, he made dua again, O oh Allah, save me from them by any means that you wish. And Allah caused the boat to overturn and he was the only one able to cling on to the boat and make it back to shore and he came back to the king again the king asked him the same thing what happened to the people I sent with you he said they all drowned Allah saved me so the king at a loss what to do the boy said listen you can't kill me the only way that you can kill me is if you do what I instruct you to do. So the king said, what's that? He said, what you do is you gather all the people on the high ground, the elevated area of the town where they can all come and see. Then you tie me to the trunk of a tree, take an arrow from my quiver, say, in the name of Allah, Lord of the boy. And then shoot the arrow and you'll be able to kill me. So the king did what he told him. He shot the arrow, said in the name of, the law, of Allah and the Lord of the boy. And the arrow hit the boy in his temple. He turned his head. That would hit him here. And the boy raised his hand, put his hand on the point where the arrow struck him and died. Then the people proclaimed... We believe in the Lord of the boy. Because they were already aware of what was transpiring. The king was trying to kill this boy and they couldn't kill him. So, his death 
brought home to them that the Lord of the boy was real. And they declared their faith in him. At this point, those around the king said, look what you've done. The thing that you feared the most has happened. The people have now accepted belief in the Lord of the boy. So the king had them dig ditches beside all the main roads, where all the main roads began. And he filled it with fire, fuel, set it on fire. And he told them to throw the people into this fire. Whoever refused to renounce their religion would be thrown in. And people were thrown in. Others jumped in. And among those was a woman carrying a newborn baby. She hesitated for a moment because of the child. And the child spoke. This is one of the three people or four people who spoke as children. Besides Prophet Isa, there were three others. The child spoke to the mother saying, Be patient, mother. For indeed, you are following the truth. So she jumped in with the child. The scholars of history, Ibn Ishaq being amongst the leading scholars of the earlier generation, they explained that this took place in Najran, in the southern part of Arabia. What is now the lower part of Saudi Arabia? which was partially a part of Yemen prior. And that the ruler of Yemen at that time was a king by the name of Zu Nuas. And he had converted, or his father had converted actually, to Judaism. And it was he who dug this trench when the people of Najran had converted to Christianity, meaning the message of Prophet Isa salam, not the Christianity which is around today. And according to those narrations, the king had killed some 20,000 of them. Later on, some of those who had escaped had gone north and informed uh, the Caesar, the Roman emperor, and he sent armies down uh, through the Najashi of Abyssinia, and Zu Nawas was defeated. He had to flee Yemen, and he died at sea. And um, that area became a Christian area. And we know from the narrations of Hadith that the Christians of Najran had come to Prophet Sallallahu and uh, debated with him. Anyway, that is the essence of the story. From this story, scholars like Omar al-Ashqar in his book Sahih, Qisas and Nabawiyah, and Mashhur Hassan in his book called Min Qisas Al-Ma'adeen Fi Hadith Sayyid Al-Mursaleen They identified a number of lessons to be taken from
from the story of the boy and the king. I'll go through a few of them before completing the tafsir of Surah Al-Buruj. The first mentioned by Sheikh Omar Al-Ashqar, that Allah arranges for his religion from time to time someone who will elevate it, who will bring the light of guidance to people. The boy was one such. The monk was there, he was conveying the message, but it was the boy who made that message known to the mass of the people. Allah chose him out from the people of his area to be the one to cause that message of Allah to spread to the people of that area. The second lesson is that the king chose the boy to be a magician to consolidate his own rule. But Allah wanted him to be a righteous scholar who would destroy the kingdom of the king and to guide people to the true religion. So this is a lesson for us that Allah when he prepares among the righteous those who would carry his religion, he protects them. And they would even grow up within the homes of the rulers themselves, the tyrants themselves, like Prophet Musa, growing up in the home of the Pharaoh. Thirdly, faith does not take a long time to settle in the hearts and to revive the souls of people. This is evident from the fact that the people when they declared their faith, like the magicians in the time of Pharaoh, when they declared their faith, when the staff of Prophet Musa had turned into a snake and had eaten up their snakes, this was evidence for them, proof. They believed immediately. And their faith was firm because Pharaoh threatened their lives, torture, crucifixion, or cru crucifixion, and similarly these people were thrown in fire, but they held firm to their faith, a faith which had become so strong in their hearts that they were prepared to die for it. Fourthly, that Allah may perform some miracles we refer to as karamat, at the hands of his awliya, his friends, to help and to protect them, to carry the message forth. For the boy was not a prophet, but Allah answered his prayers, allowing him to kill the beast and to heal people by Allah's will. Fifthly, sacrificing oneself for the sake of Allah is not suicide. It should not be considered to be a form of suicide. Because the boy showed the king how to kill him. But his goal was a greater goal. That was to spread the message to the people as a whole. He saw that in his own death, 
the message of Allah could be more effectively taken to the people. So he sacrificed his life for spreading the word of Allah. Of course, this is something that we all need to reflect on. Being in this country, surrounded by non-Muslims, that we have the same duty to carry the word of Allah to this society. We may not have the faith of the boy to sacrifice our life in the process, but we should know that it is a, 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 an obligatory duty on each and every one of us. It is not a favor that we do for Allah, to Allah, or to Muslims. It is an obligation on our part to carry the message of Allah to humankind. As the Prophet ﷺ told us, بَلِّغُ عَنِّي aya." Convey whatever you learn from me, even though it be a single verse from the Qur'an. From the messages or from the lessons we can learn is that we have to be patient. If we can't claim to be believers, enmity will be around us. Those who are disbelievers will hate us will try to destroy our faith under a variety of different guises. And we have to be prepared to suffer and to be patient with that suffering. From the lessons, we also learn that it is permissible in times of danger to lie, to protect your life. When the monk told uh, the boy to tell the sorcerer that he was delayed by the parents. This was a lie. But it was in order to further that message. Because evil, this was a lie to protect from evil. And we have also example found in Sahih al-Bukhari of Prophet Musa also, uh, or sorry, Prophet Ibrahim, no, sorry, Prophet Musa, saying about his wife that she was his sister to protect her from being uh, ravished by the ruler of Egypt. We also have that a person's or a person believing, a believing person, may weaken in times of trial and difficulty. Because a person has faith, is among the believers, it doesn't mean that they may not, in dire circumstances, weaken, as the boy gave up the name of the monk, and as the, uh, the courtier gave up the name of the boy. But, in the end, they both were prepared to sacrifice their lives for belief in Allah. So that is far greater ultimately than the weakness which they showed at a point in time when pressure was on them. They still held firm at the time when it was most critical. Also the hadith contains a call to social good. 
that those who claim that what we are supposed to be doing here is just establishing the Islamic State and Islamic law, no point in trying to set up Islamic schools and, you know, hospitals and businesses, etc., which can benefit the Muslim community. No, this hadith actually rejects that. Because here the boy was in, involved in social good, curing the sick, removing the beast from the way. This was social actions which benefited the society as a whole. They are not become even believers at that point. So the idea of uh, conveying or doing social good is something which Islam encourages as it ultimately is a means to tie people to those who are calling to Allah. Uh, my time is running out, so I'm just skipping over some of the points. Uh, Mashur Hassan, he mentioned uh, among the lessons to be learned that there, is, there was steadfastness in the early Muslims on their faith. Because each of them, and the Prophet spoke about the trials of those who came before. That they faced these trials without turning away from their religion. That these trials will come to us. That ultimately the trials refine the human being. They make him or her a better person. Allah allows these trials to take place to bring out in us the higher qualities, spiritual qualities, characteristics, moral characteristics that we all should acquire, that we all should show, we should all live. And this is part of the test of the world, of this life. That in evil there is good. What we perceive as something evil, Allah takes out of it good. Also, what we learn from this is that one shouldn't expose oneself to trials. We see the monk, he told the boy, don't inform the people about me. Don't inform the people about me. Why? To protect himself. That not to throw oneself, you know, into trial. That this idea of calling on the trials, this becomes a kind of arrogance, which is displeasing to Allah. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ had said, do not wish to meet the enemy. Don't wish to meet the enemy. Ask Allah for good health. And if you are faced with either of these, then be patient. Ask Allah for good health. Don't wish to meet the enemy. But if you are faced with the enemy, then you must be patient. We also take from this hadith that attributing cure, healing, etc., to other than Allah is not permissible. To say, the doctor cured me. The medicine removed my illness. No, this is not permissible. It is Allah who removed it. That's why the Prophet ﷺ taught us the dua, أَذْهِبِ الْبَعْصِ رَبِّ النَّاسِ 
ايش في انت الشافي لا شفاء الا شفاؤك شفاء لا يغادره سقما remove this harm o lord of humankind cure because you are the cure and there is no cure except for your cure a cure which would not be followed by harm and illness so we have to be careful it's very easy for us to say i got cured by the doctor it's very easy but it is a form of shirk minor shirk it's in statement in terms of our faith so we try to remove it to eliminate it also in the story is proof that magic is real because you have some people today who will deny the reality of magic they say magic only affects those who believe in it you believe in it then it can affect you it's psychological but this hadith shows that magic is real it has a reality it is a form of science it has with it rules and principles what was the magician teaching the boy he was teaching him principles it's a science but it's an evil science a science which is forbidden to us learning that science ultimately allah described as kufr there is also in it a sign that the battle between muslims and their enemies regardless of the form it may take is ultimately a battle of faith it's a battle which relates back to faith whether it's iraq kashmir chechnya wherever there are battles between the enemies of muslims and muslims ultimately it goes back to faith sure people might talk about oil afghanistan the oil pipeline Iraq's oil and all these other kinds of things but in in the end it's not really about the oil the oil can be gotten in a variety of different ways the oil is already under the control of the powers that be in this world but the reality is that it is a battle of faith ultimately because islam stands on one side and the rest of the world stands on the other with regards to faith belief in allah mashhur hasan mentioned that we should contemplate how the magician knowing that he was going to die took care to make sure that he passed on his evil knowledge that we today those of us who are involved in da'wah the du'at those who are calling to allah whether in organizations or as individuals are we taking the necessary steps to ensure that the knowledge be passed on to the next generation who would carry on 
If the magician could take that care, then surely we have more of a responsibility to take care. That our efforts should not be limited to our own time, our own place, but we should always be involved in training others, preparing them to carry the message forth. Allah then went on to say, وَمَا نَقَمُوا مِنْهُمْ إِلَّا أَنْ يُؤْمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ الْعَزِيزِ الْحَمِيدِ They only resented them because of their belief in Allah, the Almighty, worthy of all praise. They only resented them. The only reason that they sought to punish them with the fire was because of their belief in Allah. That is the same point. We have to keep in mind, ultimately, it is about belief in Allah. And that belief, belief in Allah, who is most worthy of praise, should have been a factor which would lead them to admire them, to honor them. But instead, it led them to the opposite treating them in the opposite way. And this is something Ibn al-Qayyim had noted, that this is a common practice among the disbelievers. That the various signs which should call them to faith, it leads them to further disbelief. And they show their enmity to the friends of Allah by hating them for the very things Allah loves them for that they should love them for so you find for example that in this world homosexuals have become a fitna a major fitna and they hate the Muslims they label them as homophobics because they oppose them and oppose what they stand for. It is not enough from their perspective that they be tolerated. No, they must be accepted. They always point out the difference between toleration and acceptance. Tolerated means that you coexist. You have no choice. But you hate what they're involved in. Whereas acceptance means you've accepted what they're doing. They want acceptance. So, they hate the believers as they hated them in the ancient times. In the time of Prophet Lut. When he brought the message to them. Their response was, أَخْرِجُوهُمْ مِنْ قَرْيَتِكُمْ إِنَّهُمْ أُنَاسٌ يَتَطَهَّرُونَ Drive them out of your world, your town. There are people who want to remain pure. Goodies. Kick them out. Get them out of England. They don't like 
cannot accept our way, they want to be pure, then kick them out. Similarly, the idol worshippers, they hate the believers for their tawheed, for their firmness on tawheed. The Hindus massacring Muslims every year. About what? Ultimately, it's about their faith. They have thousands of idols. Their religion is idolatry in its worst forms. And what they hate the most is those who reject that idolatry. Those who are calling to the truth. Similarly, the people of innovation. People of innovation, they resent the people of the sunnah. People who are involved in bid'ah, innovation, religion. They resent the people of the sunnah because they won't participate in what they're involved in. They don't want to celebrate the Prophet's birthday. They don't want to do a variety of other things which were not found in the sunnah of the Prophet And they look at them as being enemies of the Prophet. They say, look, they hate the Prophet. They won't celebrate his birthday. When in fact, they are calling to the way of the Prophet who did not celebrate his birthday, nor did his sahaba do so. Similarly, you find among the Shiites, those who resent the people of the Sunnah because of their love and admiration for the companions. For the Shiites, the companions apostated with the, ex with the exception of only three or four of them. So the love that the companions have, or that the people of the Sunnah have for the companions, they are hated for it. Though Allah said, Radiallahu anhum radu anhum. That Allah loves them, He is pleased with them, and they were pleased with Him. And so on and so forth. You find that the disbelievers hate the believers for the very things they should love them for. To whom belongs dominion of the heavens and the earth? And Allah witnesses everything. This reinforces the earlier verse, the witness and the witnessed. Allah reminds us of His dominion over all. Verse 10, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ فَتَنُوا الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَتُوبُوا فَلَهُمْ عَذَابُ جَهَنَّمُ وَلَهُمْ عَذَابُ الْحَرِيقِ Surely those who persecute the believing men and believing women and do not repent will face the torment of hell, the punishment of the blazing fire. In this verse we can see the mercy of Allah, His forgiveness, which is so great that even those who would persecute the believers, burn them alive, if they repent, he would forgive them. That is the greatness of Allah's mercy and forgiveness. He adds that condition. He could have said, Indeed, those who persecute the believing men and the believing women will face the torment of hell. That's true in general. But he added the condition. And they don't 
turn back to Allah in repentance. He takes an, makes an exception for them. That he would forgive them. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ لَهُمْ جَنَّاتٌ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ ذَلِكَ الْفَوْزُ الْكَبِيرِ Indeed, those who believe and do righteous deeds will have gardens with rivers flowing beneath them. That is the ultimate victory. Here Allah describes what is there ahead for the believers. After describing what is coming for the disbelievers who have tormented the believers, reinforcing in the hearts of the believers that no matter what they suffer in this life, in the end, the disbelievers will suffer the greatest punishment. And that's why he refers to the disbelievers, those involved in sin, as those who oppress themselves. Dhalimi anfusihim. Those who oppress themselves. Because ultimately, whatever evil we do in this life, to anyone, ends up a greater evil against ourselves. So Allah, after describing what is happening to the disbelievers, those who would torment the believers, He goes on to point out what is ahead for the believers. Gardens with rivers flowing beneath them. Something we have never seen in this world. As the Prophet ﷺ had said, the paradise contains what no eye has ever seen. What no ear has ever heard. Nor has it even crossed the mind of any being. It is beyond our comprehension. Allah uses certain terms to bring it close when He speaks about the wine of paradise, the honey, the milk, the pomegranates, the pearls, a variety of different things. These are things that we admire, we love in this world. But the realities are beyond our comprehension. And Allah closes that verse saying, ذَلِكَ الْفَوْزُ الْكَبِيرُ That is the great victory, the ultimate victory. Reminding us that success should not be measured in terms of success in this life, victory in this life. The ultimate victory is in the next life. And that is the lasting success. Because whatever we experience in this life, it comes and it goes. It may be temporary. But the success of the next is everlasting. Verse 12, إِنَّ بَطُشَ رَبِّكَ لَشَدِيدٌ Indeed, the strike of your Lord is devastating. This is a warning to the disbelievers. When Allah has decided to deal with His enemies, the enemies of the believers, the allies, His punishment is overwhelming. It's devastating. It destroys them as He did to the people before. A painful punishment. As he said with regards to Prophet Hud, وَكَذَلِكَ أَخْذُ رَبِّكَ إِذَا أَخَذَ الْقُرَى وَهِيَ ظَالِمَ إِنَّ أَخْذَهُ أَلِيمٌ شَدِيدٌ Such is the seizure of your Lord when he snatches towns in sin. Indeed, his seizure is painful and severe. إِنَّهُ هُوَ يُبْدِئُ وَيُعِيدٌ Indeed, He is the one who creates and recreates. He emphasizes, إِنَّهُ هُوَ That هُوَ 
is to emphasize that it is He alone, only He creates and recreates. No matter what human beings claim of creation, trying to create life, mapping the human genome, studying the chromosomes, etc., thinking ultimately that they will be able to create life. This is their goal, to create life from non-living matter. To bring truth to their false claim that life came about in this world by accident. This is what it's about. So billions of dollars are spent every year in research trying to create life. But Allah said, they won't be able to create a living thing, even a fly, what is something so detestable, we kill them all the time. That detestable fly, they will not be able to create. Even if they all got together with the jinn, they will never be able to create it. Of course, what they do is that they create or they make living things from other living things. But when they advertise it in the newspapers, they created life. Like the first time that they did test tube babies, they call them test tube babies, right? This is what it came in the newspaper. Scientists have made test tube babies. Now what does that sound like in your mind? Test tube, all of you have been to school, you know what a test tube is, right? means that they took some, you know, carbon, some hydrogen, some, you know, elements here, that they poured it in the test tube, they heated it, stirred it up, and out popped the baby, right? But when you actually found out what was the details of what they did, they took a sperm, they took an ovum, they put them together, and then they put them back in the woman. They didn't create any life here. They took what was already living, along with what was already living, and put together what Allah had already set in process of creating other living things. They didn't create any life. And so on and so forth. You will find they come up with new developments, but always they will make life from life. They can't start from zero. And that is what is, it irks them. It irks them. And they can't do this. Because it destroys their idea that this world came into being by an accident. The Big Bang. The Big Bang, which is what? An explosion, a massive explosion. What they're saying is that this Big Bang, this huge massive explosion, created this world and everything in it. Common sense tells them, no way. Because if you took atomic bombs and you dropped them in a junkyard, bomb after bomb, do you ever think, do you think ever that on one occasion that bomb is going to produce, if it's a junkyard, car junkyard for example, out rolls a Rolls Royce, <laughs> door open, key in the ignition, engine purring. Right? They say, yeah, it could happen. <laughs> Anything is possible, given infinite time. Right? It's possible. They illustrate it, they say, well, if you put a hundred monkeys in a cage and gave them typewriters and give them an ultimate infinite amount of time, one of them would be able to type out the whole of the Quran for you. Give them Arabic typewriters, right? The whole of the Quran. Beating on, the, on the, those typewriters with their nose, their elbows, toes, everything, sitting on it, 
Eventually, a whole copy of the Quran is going to come out. This is what they say. Anything is possible. So, Allah challenges them. He is the one who creates. You can't do this. No matter what you do, you can manipulate. Yes, you manipulate. And you learn how to manipulate well. We've taught you. Allah taught us. But create? Real creation? No. وَهُوَ الْغَفُورُ الْوَدُودِ He, Allah, is the forgiving and the loving, the beloved. He stresses here, not only forgiveness, but loving. Because people sometimes forgive, but there is no love. You did this to me, okay, I forgive you, but in my heart, there is something remaining, right? right? It's very difficult to forgive somebody after they've done something bad and love them. But this is Allah. He is Al-Wadud. The scholars say Al-Wadud means Al-Habib. He is the loving and the loved. He is the one who loves in a way that no human being, no creature can love. His love Prophet gave an example to try to bring it close to our mind. How great his love is. He said that Allah's love for the sinners who turn back in repentance to him is greater than a man whose ride, he had a ride out in the desert. His ride ran off with his food, his drink, and all of his belongings. He's left on the desert to die. He gives up hope. He lies down under a tree, preparing himself to die. And he looks up, and there is the camel sitting above him. He grabs a hold of the reins. Imagine how happy they would be. I mean, that is the peak of happiness. And Allah is more happy than such an individual. Happy with their turning back to him in repentance. He loves them. And is happy with them. Dhul Arsh al-Majid. The glorious owner of the throne. The glorious owner of the throne. There are two narrations, recitations for this. Dhul Arsh al-Majid. That is al-Majidu. Or Dhul Arsh al-Majidi. And it changes the meaning. In one Dhul Arsh al-Majidu. The glorious owner of the throne. Dhul Arsh al-Majidi, the owner of the glorious throne. Both narrations are authentic narrations, recitations of the Qur'an. And in it, Allah has praised the throne in the second recitation. He has praised the throne, calling it Al-Majid, which is vast, vast in its essence. It is the highest point of creation. It is the closest of creation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is above it. The mighty throne. The throne which is brought on the day of judgment by eight angels. Carried on the day of judgment by eight angels. As Allah said regarding it. وَيَحْمِلُ عَرْشَ رَبِّكَ يَوْمَئِذٍ ثَمَانِيَةٍ فوقهم, فوقهم يَوْمَئِذٍ ثَمَانِيَةٍ 
that your, uh, the throne of your Lord will be carried by eight angels above them. Those people who say Allah's throne is really his dominion. Because the idea of a throne and Allah being above the throne, they say, oh, this doesn't sound right. You know? Because when you think of a throne, you think of something looking like a chair. And it means that you're going to sit on top of it. Oh, no, no, it's making Allah like a human being. So we say, no, no, no throne. Throne really means Allah's dominion. His power over everything. But how do you explain Allah saying that eight angels will carry it on the day of judgment? They will carry Allah's dominion? They will carry His power? This is nonsense. So, we accept the throne as Allah describes it, as the Prophet ﷺ described it. The arsh, as distinct from the kursi, wasi'a kursi wa samawati wal ard, where the, thro- the, the footstool, the kursi is the footstool, extends over the heavens and the earth. The Prophet ﷺ had said that the whole of the world in relationship to the footstool is like an iron ring thrown in the middle of a boundless desert. That's the whole of this world, the whole universe, everything in relationship to the kursi, the footstool. And the footstool in relationship to the arsh, to the throne, is like that same ring thrown in that same boundless desert. This is how great the throne is. So Allah swears by it. Or not swears by it, but He attributes it to Himself. Dhul Arsh, possessing the throne. And whenever Allah attributes things to Himself, it means that they have a special value. They are great. They are important. In this also is proof that Allah is above His creation. Because we have people today, been around for some time, saying that Allah is everywhere. He's in me and He's in you. Sai Baba in India says He's more in me than the rest of you, so worship me. And He has 8 million people worshipping Him. That's God incarnate. This is the proof. The Prophet ﷺ had said, with regards to the throne, he said that there are 100 levels in paradise. This is in Sahih Sunan Tirmidhi. There are 100 levels in paradise. The distance between each is like the distance between the sky and the earth. Firdaus is the highest. From it flows the four rivers of paradise. And above it is the throne. And above it is the throne. So, Allah is above his throne, as he said. And for those who have problem with that, then go to Sahih Muslim, where Muawiyah bin al-Hakam narrated that he had slapped his servant girl and was regretful for what he did, wanted to free her as, as a means of repentance, came to the Prophet ﷺ and asked him about it. The Prophet ﷺ said, bring her. And he asked her two questions. Two questions which he would use to determine whether she was a believer, a believing Muslim, 
In which case he would say to him, free her, or whether she was not. The first question was, not, do you believe in Allah? But, Ain Allah. Where is Allah? Where is Allah? And her answer was, Fissama, above the heavens. And then he asked her, Woman, Anna, and who, are you? who am I? And she said, Anta Rasulullah. You are the Messenger of Allah. So he said to her, to, to Muawiyah ibn Hakam, Atiqha fa innaha mu'mina. Free her because she is a true believer. Free her because she is a believer. He had her freed on the basis of her statement that Allah is above the heavens. So, there really is no room for argument after that. The last two verses, in the last two verses, Allah says there, بَلِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا فِي تَكْذِيبٍ No, sorry, before that. A few more verses. هَلْ أَتَاكَ حَدِيثُ الْجُنُودِ فِرْعَوْنَ وَثَمُودِ have you heard about the story of the, the hosts of Pharaoh and Thamud? This is a reminder of the greatness of Allah, His control, His dominion over everything. That He ultimately will punish the, believer, the disbelievers, whether it is in this life or the next. بَلِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا فِي تَكْذِيبُ وَاللَّهُ مِنْ وَرَائِهِمْ مُحِيطٌ Yet the disbelievers remain in denial, but Allah surrounds them from behind. That in spite of the signs that Allah has left, the pyramids, the ancient ruins, whether it's in the north of England, Stonehenge, or it's uh, in Africa, or America, or Asia, wherever, there are signs of the previous generations that were destroyed. But people remain in a state of denial. They don't want to deal with the realities of it. They will research it. They will write stories about it and teach it in universities. But they won't reflect on it. They don't take it as signs which Allah has left behind. Because had he wished, these ruins could have been devastated so completely that you would not see any behind. But he left them behind as signs. بَلْ هُوَ قُرْآنٌ مَجِيدٌ Indeed, this is a glorious Qur'an inscribed in a secured book. Qur'anum Majid. A glorious Qur'an. Allah calls the Qur'an Al-Qur'an Al-Kareem. The noble Qur'an. Al-Qur'an Al-Azim. The magnificent Qur'an. But He never called the Qur'an the Holy Qur'an. This is something we need to reflect on. We're in the habit today of referring to the Quran as the Holy Quran and the Holy Prophet. This is the influence of Christianity on us because they call their book the Holy Bible. So in order to elevate the Quran to that status, they call it the Holy Quran. As you have the Holy Bible, you have the Holy Quran. But this description of the Quran is not found anywhere in the Quran or the Sunnah. So we should avoid it. Call the Qur'an as Allah called it. The noble Qur'an, the magnificent Qur'an. Right? 
the glorious Quran, etc. Fi lawhim mahfuz, inscribed in the secured book. The Quran is protected, as Allah promised that He would protect it. Inna nahnu nazzalna dhikra, wa inna lahu lahafidun. Surah Al-Hijr, verse 9. Allah says that we have revealed this reminder and we will protect it. He protected it and the place that he protected in, protected it in, he also protected. The law al-Mahfuz, in which the Quran is contained, is itself protected. It is the record of everything which cannot be changed, cannot be influenced, it is protected from the play of the jinn, books which are around in the world today, though they may be attributed back to prophets of the past, they have been distorted and changed. Through human beings and the jinn, they have played with these texts. Whereas the Quran, Allah has preserved it in all of its aspects and preserve the very place in which it is kept. The Lawh al-Mahfuz, Ubadah ibn Samit, had said that the Prophet ﷺ had said, the first thing which Allah created was the pen. And he instructed the pen to write, and the pen asked, what should it write? And Allah told it to write everything that was and would be. This record is the Lawh al-Mahfuz. So this surah, surah al-Buruj, contains in it signs for us to reflect on with regards to Allah's greatness, His power, His knowledge. Signs with regards to the trials that the believers will face in this life. Glad tidings that they will ultimately succeed, that the disbelievers will be punished. No matter what we see in this life. And also, that for the believers, ultimate success comes in the next life. This surah is one we should all reflect on. The story of the boy and the king is there for reflection. It is very important for us to treat the Quran as a book of reflection and not a, an amulet, something which we recite for protection while not understanding what we are reciting. This is the common state of Muslims today. We don't know what we're reading. We need to know what we're reading. As Allah told us, Quran. Will they not reflect on the Quran? Or are their hearts locked up, sealed, unable to benefit from the message? Like the Jews before us, becoming donkeys carrying books on our backs. We need to reflect on the Quran. It has in us, in it, guidance for us to handle all of the needs of our lives. The circumstances we were faced here as Muslims, the trials we're faced here, we have to know 
That if we stand firm, ultimately, success is with Allah. And even what appears to us to be failures, if we're patient with the failures, Allah counts it as success for us. We don't lose. Only if we give up hope. Only if we give up faith. This surah calls us to renew our faith in Allah. To be sincere to Him. To be sincere to the religion that we claim to be a part of. Success only is only for those who are ultimately sincere. I ask Allah to help us to achieve sincerity, ikhlas, in our worship, in our practice of the religion. To give us success with regards to our iman, to live as believers and to die as believers. And to give us success in carrying this message of faith to the world in which we live.